Stephanie, appreciate it. Good morning, Flagstaff. How you doing? Good to see you guys. It's an honor to be here. Um, I'm very sorry, those of you who are used to Vince and couldn't wait to get back to NAU to see Vince, he abandoned you this morning, and I apologize for that. Let me tell you two things about Vince. Vince is considerably younger than I am, and so I will have a lot more to say than Vince does, because I have more experience. And so those of you that have caffeine with you in any form, you better take it right now, because you're going to need it. Uh, The second thing I will tell you about Vince is that we love Vince. Uh, Vince has been around redemption since before it was redemption. Uh, God has uh, gifted him as a tremendously talented communicator, and frankly, it's been too long since he's preached at Arcadia, and Cody and I, Cody's been up here to lead worship before, Cody and I got together and said, it's time to remind the people in Arcadia um, how bad they have it in Arcadia, and that they should really live in Flagstaff, and so we wanted Vince to come down, but that means that I had to come up here, so um, one other thing I want to mention uh, about my name, my last name is Switzer, and that may sound vaguely familiar, this, is just a, this has nothing to do with anything, it's just a little bit of family history. My grandfather, Walter Switzer, was born in 1886 in Kentucky, and almost immediately his family moved to Flagstaff before Arizona was even a state, and he and his brother, I believe his brother was named Everett, grew up... <clears throat> here in Flagstaff, and then my grandfather, Walter, uh, who never even went to high school, as a young teenager, moved down to Phoenix, and then moved to L.A., and then eventually moved back to Phoenix and started a business. He and his brother, Everett, I believe his name is Everett, I can't be sure, but I believe, Everett stayed here in Flagstaff and opened a hardware store uh, in Flagstaff, and the, the two of them actually had a feud about how to pronounce our last name. Uh, the people in the, the Flagstaff Switzers said the name is Schweitzer. My, um, my uh, grandfather, Walter, said, no, 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 you pronounce it like Switzerland. So we actually have blood relatives that pronounce our names differently. We have this chasm in our family. And so those of you that have seen Schweitzer Canyon Road, that's actually, I guess, my great uncle. I don't know what that would be. Anyway, it's my grandfather's um, uh, brother's family. And Vince told me, the reason I bring this up is because Vince told me that when he first moved up here, he kept pronouncing uh, Schweitzer Canyon Road, Switzer Canyon Road, and people would immediately correct him. And he's like, hey, I know Frank Switzer, so, you know. But apparently it didn't make any difference. Anyway, just a little uh, family history to try to connect you to who I am. Let's just get to Judges. What do you say? All right, here we go. We've been in Judges for, I don't know, three or four weeks. In Arcadia, this is our fourth week in Judges. We took an extra week. And here's the Judges' big idea. I want to make sure everybody's on, on the same page with this. So a little bit of review. Here's the, the Judges' big idea. The Judges' big idea is that in those days, there was no God in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their eyes. And so let's make sure we understand what it means when the writer says there was no God in Israel. Uh, uh, historically and chronologically, we know that this is before the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, when um, the, the the kingship, the human kingship, was actually established in Israel. And so, when we read that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their eyes, we tend to assume that he, the writer, is talking about these human kings. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that God is Israel's king, and the people of God are supposed to. Rest 
recognize him as their king, but they were not recognizing him as their king. So although God was there because they were rebelling against him, and as Judges 2.16 says, they were constantly whoring after other gods, they, they, had, they were acting as if there was no God in Israel. And so the author is, is sort of using a little bit of a rhetorical technique saying there was no king in Israel because they did not recognize Yahweh as king as they should have. And when we do not recognize God as king, when we do not recognize God as God, we will do what is right in our own eyes and then disaster comes. Um, Cody, who has led worship up here, and we've talked about this, uh, he says, you know, I, I understand this beautifully because in my home we have kind of a similar situation that goes on. Uh, Cody has three little boys. He's got Kyler, Hayes, and Wesley. And he says that there are times, quite often in his home, that even though he and Lauren, the parents, are in the home, the boys do not recognize that the parents are in the home. And so Cody likes to say, in those days there were no parents in the Kimmel house and the children did what was right in their eyes. And so, so I just want you to make sure that you understand. It's not that Cody and Lauren aren't there. It's that the kids are ignoring Cody and Lauren. So that's the big idea for the book of Judges. The big idea today is this. God is sovereign and faithful even as we cling to our false gods. God is sovereign and faithful even as we cling to our false gods. Let me say it another way. It's not God who leaves us, but we who leave God. So let's dive right into the text. We are going to be looking over the next two weeks at the story of Gideon. Today we're just doing chapter 6. Next week we'll be doing 7, 8, and 9. Okay, so chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord... And you could say again, because this just becomes a repeating pattern in the book of Judges. And the Lord gave them into the hand of, the, of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because, Midian, because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. They were even stealing the donkeys. Those must have been some really nice donkeys. For they would come up... That's my favorite biblical animal, by the way, is the donkey. Uh, For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in numbers. But they had... Uh, But they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So, evil again, what a shock. This is just a constant pattern in in Judges, and I'll get to that pattern in a second. But uh, I want to mention this about sin. There's a whole bunch of things that we could say about sin at this point, all the various characteristics of sin. We could come up with eight or ten things. There's two things that I just want to mention today that come up repeatedly in the book of Judges as we sin and rebel against God. Number one, sin enslaves, always. Sin is not your friend. Sin is going to be your master. And so sin will put you into slavery from the very beginning before you even realize you're enslaved to it. Even when you're just toying with it around the edges, it is 
enslaving you. And it is a harsh master. So many of us understand and believe that sin is something that might uh, inconvenience us or it might uh, cause a little problem over here or it's something over here that we can just smooth over and it just kind of complicates our life on occasion. No, sin does way more way more than complicate our lives. It destroys our relationships. It destroys our reputation. It destroys our ability to do the things that we want to do. It destroys our successes. Some of us think it just leads us into failure. It also just tears down our successes, and it will destroy our communities. Uh, uh, Last week, when we were studying Deborah, this truth just kept coming out over and over and over. When you and I serve foreign gods, we will end up serving foreign rulers. In fact, it's uh, Judges chapter 5, verse 8. When new gods are chosen, then war is at our gates. That's just the way it is. Here's the second thing about sin. Sin is an addiction. It's an addiction that we can't just contain or manage. And I know all of us think we can do that. I think I can do that too with my sin. I can keep my sin close, but I can contain it and manage it. But that's not true. Sin is an addiction, and it's something that we must be willing to put an absolute end to. It's, it's just like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. A dog will throw up. We have two dogs, and I know this for a fact. A dog will throw up, and then it will return to its vomit and start eating it. That is the picture of you and I returning constantly to our sin. Some of you are like, I'll never forget that picture of sin again. It's it's great. But but we need to be willing to end, end it because sin will never retreat quietly. Sin is not your friend. Sin is not on your side. It will never retreat quietly. Now, in this text, I want you to notice that we have another enemy. We have a new enemy. This time it's Midian and to some extent the Amalekites. And this is not an enemy that, like so many of the other enemies of Israel, was coming in to occupy and dwell in the land. This was an enemy that had decided they were just going to make raids into the land at the most opportune times, take all of the plunder, take all of the spoil. And, and what I imagine in my mind is they look like locusts at harvest time going in and just stripping the land. And even the text says they are like locusts. They're going in and stripping the land. They came for one reason. That was plunder and spoil. And this included sexual plundering. So they were coming in and taking goods and assets, but they were also coming in and taking sex from the women in the land. Now imagine living this way. Imagine living in a situation where you knew that it was just a matter of time until the next offense came and invaded not just your nation, but your neighborhood and your household. And it was only a matter of time, and it was inevitable. Imagine living that way. And yet, it took them seven years before they thought, "Eh, let's cry out to the Lord, maybe he could do something. Seven years. One of the greatest lies of sin is that it'll make you think that things will get better if you just hang in there with it. It's one of the great lies of sin. Verses 7 through 10. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So 
This is one of the first little hitches in our common pattern in the book of Judges. Here's the common pattern in the book of Judges. Everything is fine. And then the people, as I said in Judges 2.16, begin to whore after other gods. They prostitute themselves to other gods. And when that happens, their enemies come in and begin to oppress them. And they are now enslaved to foreign rulers. And so finally at some point, except in the case of Samson later on, the people actually cry out to God. God comes in and appoints and anoints a judge, a deliverer, somebody who is going to, by the power of God, rescue the nation of Israel. Stuff goes down, and then the land has peace. And then they start the whole cycle over again. This time, however, there's a little change. The people cry out, and God does not immediately appoint and anoint the deliverer, but rather first he sends a prophet to the people to remind them of their unfaithfulness and disobedience. And, and you heard up here earlier today the idea of seeing us in the scripture. That's us too. That's exactly like us. When you and I finally do cry out to God, very often past the appropriate crying time, we are such consumers that what you and I generally expect from God is that he's just going to come in and give us immediate and excellent service and just fix the problem and be on his merry way and get out of our hair. We're not interested really in rebuke, correction, discipline, or training. We just want him to fix the problem. Now, we may not say that out loud because we understand how problematic that is, but that's exactly how most of us live our lives. But what is it that 2 Timothy chapter 3 says? Paul writes this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's not just that we go to God to fix things, but we also go to God to find out what's wrong with us and how he can invade our hearts and change our hearts. We need to remember that. And again, in this passage, one of the things that God is trying to do with his people is he's trying to remind, him, remind them of who he is and what he's done for them, which is everything. He wants them to remember God. They have a problem remembering God. You and I have a problem remembering God. I have a problem remembering God. We are so fickle, especially when it comes to our other gods, our idols, our false gods, things like comfort and and wealth, and excellent coffee, and, and whatever it is that we're going we're gonna to bow down to and worship. Uh, John Demeter is a, an elder at our Peoria congregation, and he has this illustration about trying to remember God. He, he's married, and, and, and he said, um, uh, do you really think that I can have a good relationship with my wife if the only time I ever spend with her is 75 minutes every other week, And then I expect her to just bless me and serve me. Now that's crazy talk, isn't it? We would never expect that horizontally. And and we would never necessarily say out loud that we would expect it vertically, but that's exactly the way we behave. God calls us to remember him because we'll forget him if we don't. When things like gathering corporately for church become optional, God gets forgotten. Uh, You and I need to be people of the word. We need to be people of song. When Camille is leading us, we need to be singing. And we need to be people of the table. 
You had the new RC leaders up here, and you have other RCs. That's what we mean by people of the table. You need to be in fellowship with other people who are remembering God, and you're telling God stories together, and you're remembering God together. Because if we don't do those things, we will forget him, and we will slip into these old, bad patterns and habits. So then finally... The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, verses 11 through 18. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash. Joash is Gideon's father, the Abizarite. And now the Abizarites were members of the tribe of Manasseh. They were a clan in Manasseh, just to give you some bearings here. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. This is how bad things have gotten in Israel. You're trying to clean your wheat in a wine press, which doesn't work. You need wind to be able to uh, thresh your wheat. So it's, it's, it's just not working. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now here's Gideon hiding from the Midianites in a broken down wine press, threshing his wheat, because he's afraid of the Midianites, and God comes and calls him Almighty Man of Valor. That's our big idea. God is sovereign and faithful to us even as we continue to cling to our false gods. Gideon hasn't called out to God yet, and yet God is pursuing him. That's our God. He's the hound of heaven. There's a, a painting up here, an original painting up here on this music stand. Uh, at Arcadia, we do a lot of prison ministry down in Florence and in Buckeye at Lewis uh, Complex. Uh, personally, I've been doing prison ministry for about 15 years. I visit guys down in Florence. I also go down on occasion and get to preach down in Florence. Cody and David Massey and Josh Prather, who are all on staff at Arcadia, also preach down at Florence. Uh, this painting was done by one of the prisoners down in Florence that we're very close to. I've, I've had a 15-year relationship with this guy. It's a painting of Gideon threshing wheat in the wine press, and he's got his, his threshing rake uh, like this, and the shadow that's being cast against the wall of the wine press is actually Gideon as a warrior with a shield and a spear. It's a beautiful picture of how Gideon sees himself and how God sees Gideon through the shadow. At some point, maybe during reflection time or afterwards, you can come up and look at the painting. It's a, it's a beautiful painting. So he says this to Gideon. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? And we'll deal with that. But now the Lord has forsaken us and, for, and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? Do I not send you? Isn't that interesting? Gideon has this long, drawn-out, whiny, complaining question for God, and God doesn't answer his question. Instead, he answers the question Gideon should have answered. That's Jesus' MO as well. If, you, if you've read the Gospels, you know that people are always asking Jesus questions, and he usually answers the question that they should have asked. So God is always keeping us on track. He's always pushing us. He's got those ox goads out, kind of going, ah, let's, let's head over here. At verse 15, and he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midians, uh, strike the Midians as one man. 
And he said to him, if now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and, it will, and set it before you. And he, and he said, I, I, I will stay until you return. So he, again, just seeing ourselves in, in the text here. Why do you and I say, I say this all the time, Lord, please remove this problem. Lord, please remove this circumstance. Lord, please remove this person from my life. When really what we should be saying is, Lord, would you please give me the power and strength and equip me and make me into someone who can handle this problem and who can minister to this person. With you, all things are possible. Why don't we say that more often? Instead, we just want God to come in and serve us and take away our problems. James chapter 1, verses 2 through uh, 3 says this, Consider it all joy, my beloved. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. What? When you encounter tribulation, temptation, trials of various kinds, consider it joy because the testing of your faith, there's the gospel component, will produce in you perseverance. That word perseverance is the Greek word hupomene, which is also translated this way, endurance, steadfastness, and patience. You and I want endurance, steadfastness, patience, and, and, and perseverance. Do we not? And God comes along and says, here's how you obtain it. It's when the gospel in your life gets tested by tough situations. Lord, make us into people who can handle these problems. Don't necessarily just take these problems away from us. And this is an angel of the Lord. It's God's messenger. Uh, Scholars all say that when the angel of the Lord is talking, you just assume that it's God who is talking. And of course, those of us who are familiar with a lot of these Old Testament narratives kind of look at Gideon's call, and we see Moses' call, and we see Esther's call as well. So there's some similarities there. There's the reticence, the the, the idea that I don't want to go and do what God is calling me to do. And then verse 13 Isn't this just like you and I to accuse God of not being with us when things are bad, when what really happened is that we've disobeyed and walked away from God? I remember when 9-11 happened. Some of you were very young and may not even remember it. I remember when 9-11 happened, and the number one question of people in response to 9-11 was this. Where was God on 9-11? I'll tell you where he was. He was sitting on his throne in heaven. This was not out of his control. Instead of blaming God, we should maybe be asking ourselves the question, what is it that we're not doing well? What is it that we're not doing under God's call? It's the big idea when God, God is sovereign and faithful even as we cling to our gods. And then verse 15 again is pretty much like us. We're finding reasons all the time why we can't do what God calls us to do. And really, we can't. Here's the tension and the irony. We really can't do what God calls us to do under our own power. None of us are good enough to do it. It's only because God equips us and enables us and empowers us and fills us with his Holy Spirit. And that is so tense. Next week when we go into uh, the rest of Gideon's story, we're going to see that tension that Gideon lived with, the fact that he had these amazing victories, but it really kind of went to his head, and he started to think that he was really something special. He was really something special. We need, we need to remember that it's, it's not us. But Gideon says, all the, all, the usual, all the usual complaints, hey, you know what? I'm from the weakest tribe, Manasseh. And my family's the worst family in the weakest tribe. And guess what? I'm the dunce of my family. You have come specifically to the worst possible person that you could come to, God. And that's who God uses. Because this is about God. 
God says, this ain't about you, Broham. This is all about me. It's in the Hebrew. You can check it out. And he says, essentially, he says, you know that whole what's impossible for man is possible with God thing? That always applies. And then we get to verses 19 through 24. This is the sign and the offering. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put into a pot and he brought them, <coughs> brought them to him, to the angel of the Lord under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of, of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. It's not just that the wet meat and unleavened cakes caught fire. It's that the rock, which shouldn't be able to catch fire, started the whole fire in the first place. He's making it clear that this is God. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he had seen the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the, of the Lord face to face. So he's a little nervous that he might be killed. But then the, uh, the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. Now, 19, again, 19 through 24, you kind of see shadows if you're familiar of it, uh, with it. The First Kings chapter 18 story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And so Gideon does get a clear sign from God, one that he asked for. He even decides to name the altar, the Lord is peace. But let us make sure that we understand exactly what the definition of peace is. Peace is not the absence of turmoil, but it is the presence of God. We need to remember that. We want peace to be the absence of trouble and challenges and turmoil, but God's definition of true peace in our lives is the presence of him, the presence of the resurrected Christ, the presence of the gospel in our lives. But this is very strong language that Gideon uses here. He's convinced. And yet, just a few verses later, when we get to verse 36, he does the whole fleece thing. It's just amazing how quickly he forgets. And it is. Again, it's just like us. God does something very special for us. He actually does decide uh, against his normal MO to remove a circumstance or bless us impossibly and unexpectedly. Or he gives us the strength to do something that we never could have uh, done ourselves or wanted to sign up for. And he does something that we cannot explain and we look at with awe. And then a couple of weeks later, a couple of days later, even a couple of hours later, we'll start asking, Hey God, are you really God? And are you really there? Show me again that you're real. I'm not feeling it anymore, Lord. I need you. In fact, I'm going to go and check out my other gods now unless you show me a sign. It reminds me of Mark chapter 9. We went through the gospel of Mark uh, last year. Mark chapter 9, the the father of the demon-possessed son. And he comes and he asks Jesus for help. He's tried everything. He's even gone to the disciples of Jesus. And Jesus tells the father... All things are possible for those who believe. Do you believe? And what does the Father say? I believe. Help me with my unbelief. When we are weak, then he is strong. We should admit our weakness and lean into the strength of God. And I'm telling you, we don't see ourselves in Scripture. We're either just not looking or we're in complete denial. And frankly, yes, Gideon has his nerve asking uh, God again for a sign, which we'll get to in verse 36. But I also want us to consider the humanity of this. 
God is asking Gideon to do something extraordinarily dangerous, which will surely result in the end of his life. He will probably be killed doing this. He's frightened, just like you and I are. And again, we need to remember that courage is not the absence of fear, but rather it's us being willing to take action in spite of the fear that we have. One author writes this, Barry Webb. What Gideon does is simultaneously entirely understandable and also thoroughly insulting to God. Look at these next three verses, 25 through 27. Irony abounds in these verses. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah, that's the the, uh, sex god that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a bird offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town, because he's going to tear down their idols, their false gods, he did it by night instead of doing it by day. So here's the irony. The symbol of the Canaanite god is what? A bull. So he's going to use the bull to pull down the altar to Baal. Okay? And the wood used to sacrifice the bull is the wood from the Canaanite sex god statue, Asherah. So there's just all this irony that is going into this. And then look at the reaction of the people of the town, verses 28 through 32. When the men of the town arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of of Baal was, was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. I love love 3,000 years ago how they never minced words, okay? They didn't beat around the bush. Bring him out. We're going to kill him, all right? For he has broken down the altar of Baal. Remember, these are God's people. These are people, the people of Yahweh, the people of the Lord, who are saying, we're going to kill this guy because he pulled down our false god. Okay, just incredible irony. Because he cut down Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to those who stood against him, these are great words, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. Uh, If he is a god... Let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerobel. That is to say, let Baal contend against them, because he broke down their altar. So, uh, the reaction we see to questioning, criticizing, or destroying somebody's false god. That's what we see here. And we're going to come back to that. That's what we're going to end with. Verses 33 through 35, then. Gideon goes and prepares for war, but before he goes to war, he still has his doubts. And so we get into this whole episode of the fleece in verses 36 through 40. It says this, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, by now it should be clear to him that, he, that this is going to happen. But Gideon says, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry all around on the ground, uh, then... I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and he squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. 
Let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground all around it let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all around the ground there was dew. Gideon takes a lot of heat for this little paragraph here. Some deserved and not, some not so deserved. Uh, Gideon knows that he's not supposed to test God. He knows that. He knows that's, that's a rule. That's part of the law. He knows that what he's asking for is wrong. That's why he asked a second time that God's anger would not burn against him. But this is also interesting too. Uh, scholars in all the commentaries make this note. If you put wool fleece on the ground overnight in a place that has dew, guess what? The next morning after the sun comes up, it is expected that the, uh, the wool fleece would actually be wet with the dew even when the ground is dry all around. That's kind of expected what would happen. So the question they have is, did Gideon get up the next morning and after he did all of this suddenly realize, oh, that's what would have happened anyway even without God's power? I guess I better ask God again. So he goes to the Lord and he says, I need to do this one more time, but I need to get it right. I need to get it, have it done the other way. And that's possible that that's what's happening here. But here's where Gideon really takes flack from the commentators. It's what I mentioned earlier. How? How does a guy who's already been through all these experiences, right in his rearview mirror, how does he go and ask God again for a sign? And the problem, I think, mostly... With, with the way we look at this, is with our interpretation of what Gideon is trying to get out of this little episode. Many of us wrongfully believe that Gideon is asking God to help him with some decision of sort. And then what we have done in the past, or what some of us will even do today, is we appropriate this biblical methodology to our lives as well, and we begin to throw out our own fleeces, so to speak. And we need to understand, this is just narrative description. This is not prescriptive. This is not calling us to start throwing out fleeces. And yet, and yet, when it comes to decision-making, it's very common that I will hear people say things like this. If he texts me before noon, that means that a romantic relationship is probably something I should lean into. If they call me about the job before the end of the week, I should probably take the other job. If I'm the first person to get to class on that particular day, then I'm going to get an A on the exam. No, if you study, you might get an A on the exam. This is not what Gideon's doing, though. Gideon's context is one of many gods, just like our context today. He's in the land of Canaan, even though it's Israel's land now. But there's many, many gods there. And, and the way they would do it, the way the Canaanites would do it, is just kind of like us, too. We don't necessarily speak of it in terms like this, but there's this pantheon, there's these... <clears throat> All these different gods, and think of it as a department store. Every god is in charge of a particular department of the universe. And so there's a god of the economy, there's a god of agriculture, uh, there's a god of the sun, there's a god of sex. There's all these different gods. But no god has any power over anybody, any other god's area. They only have power over their area. So you have to go to every single god in order to appease them and get them to do what you want them to do in that particular area. And certainly no god would claim sovereignty over all of the departments. That would just be crazy talk to do that. So, so people would go to these gods according to their need, their season of life, or their predilection. Doesn't this sound familiar? This is exactly what we do with our false gods in our context and in our culture. That's exactly what we do. So what Gideon is doing here is he's not asking God about a decision, but rather he's asking God about his nature and his character. 
He's saying, if you're really the one true God, you can control nature. You can do the do thing. And then, if, and then he'll know that God controls everything. And then he'll know that he is Yahweh, that God is God, that he's not a department God, but he's the creator God of the universe, the one and only. And this is really important for us. And here's why. Most of us, we, we want God. We do. And we acknowledge God. And we'll say that we even believe in God. But even if we have a truly accurate intellectual understanding of the gospel of Jesus, in practice, what many of us want to do is we want Jesus to just fit in quietly with the rest of our gods and just do his job. And just meld in with the rest of our gods. We want Jesus with our idols. We want Jesus with our worship of sex and power and intellectualism and status our, so, our worship of social media prowess, our, our worship of comfort, that's my big idol right there, comfort and convenience, our worship of causes and, and just overall coolness. Jesus is not going to exist alongside all of our other gods, all of our false gods, because he's the one and only true God. And false gods never fail to fail us. When will we learn that? False gods never fail to fail us. This is part of the human condition, though. Spiritual deterioration is inevitable. We will always forget God, even though we shouldn't. Therefore, spiritual renewal is essential. We need to be in church. We need to sing songs of praises. We need to be in our seas. We need to be challenged by Bible study. And here you, here you go. Maybe more than anything, every single day, you and I need to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done in our lives, that we are loved far beyond our capacity to even imagine his love. And then we need to proclaim the gospel to others by loving and serving our communities and our neighborhoods and loving those people who are in the margins and those people that are really, truly unlovable. That's what he calls us to do. It's a big call, and it's really hard, and we can't do it without him. The bottom line is that if God is sovereign, he is our wisdom, guidance, and true north in all things. I want to wrap this up. Go back to verses 28 through 32 where Gideon pulls down the idols and he destroys the idols. Now remember, these are God's people. God's people, Yahweh's people worshiping these false gods, these idols. Now I'm sure you understand that in our culture today, one of the big idols, one of the big false gods in our, in our culture today is sexual ethics, gender identity, same-sex marriage, all of that stuff kind of lumped in together. Can you imagine what would happen if somebody would actually pull down the altars of those things in our culture? What would happen to that person? It would be very difficult for that person. And I'll tell you, one of the ways <clears throat> that we actually begin to pull down those altars is, is merely by walking up and entering a conversation and saying, you know, there's another way to look at our sexuality, there's another way to understand our identity in this world. There's another way to understand gender. There's another way to understand these things that, that you're sure you have figured out. All you have to do is propose a different way to look at this, and you will be tearing down people's altars, and they will respond badly. This is not uncommon. Human nature has not changed in 3,500 years. We need to remember that. The same problems and challenges we encounter today have existed for thousands and thousands of years. Poor Gideon. These idols were enshrined in his town. 
they were sanctioned by his father, Joash. And to go against not only the townspeople, but also his father is shameful and suicidal in his context at best. Yet Gideon does it. And the townspeople are certain that Gideon's father will help them. That, they, that, that, that he will deliver Gideon to them. And, and Gideon's father, Joash, he helps all right. He speaks daring truth to the townspeople. He says to them, you know what? If Baal's really God, why do you have to save him? If he's really God, why does he need you so badly? You see, this is, this is really hard for us. If we want to be popular and affirmed, don't challenge culture's idols. But that's exactly what Gideon and his father Joash did. They stood up against their culture's false gods, and in doing so, they forsook popularity for obedience and faithfulness. And I want you to know this is exactly what Jesus did when he went to the cross. This is exactly what he did. Gideon and Joash are but a small foreshadowing of what Jesus did on the cross. Hanging there on the cross, Jesus was taking a stand against every false god, every idol, and every deceitful thing in our lives. When you look at him on the cross, when you imagine him on the cross, he is standing against those things, false gods, idols, and deceit. And because we're prone to these things, he had to go and do this. Our fallen nature leads us to believe that our sin and our idols and our false gods can give us the fulfillment and the joy and the contentment and the security that all of us long for, legitimately long for. But Jesus takes all of that on himself. And he stands against it. And he stands in victory over it. And, in, and, and then in this amazing act of grace and love, he gives it to us. The only one who has been perfectly righteous went and crucified his righteousness on that cross so that those of us who are not righteous could be made righteous as his gift to us. Verse 34 tells us, as as Gideon went to uh, organize everybody for battle, that he was clothed in the spirit of the Lord. That's what happens to you and I when we come to Christ. We are clothed in the Holy Spirit. We are clothed in the resurrected Christ. Ephesians 4 says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Joash and, of course, Gideon are, like I said, a small foreshadowing of the reality of the great judge, the great deliverer, the great advocate, the great Savior, Jesus. This is the historical redemptive story of God and his people. We forsake him, he saves us. That's the big idea. God is sovereign and faithful even as we cling to our false gods. That's why you and I should live in gratitude. That's why we should live in joy. And that's why we should live to serve and love others. That is the gospel. Let me pray and we'll uh, get ready to enter into our time of reflection and response. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you for how you... Uh, You don't gloss over anything. You challenge us every single time with your word and your truth. You you tell us the truth about us, and you tell us the the glorious truth, the saving truth, the wonderful, loving truth about about you as well. And God, we submit that to you, and we thank you for that. Lord God, thank you for uh, how you've called Redemption Church to be a church that's gospel-centered and and outward focused, and and how you've called individual, young, gifted men to lead at Redemption Church, men like, like Cody and Vince and Josh. Thank you for them. 
So now, God, as we reflect on your word and what we've learned, we just ask that we would, we would seek to understand better those things that deceive us in our lives, and we would just turn them over to you, and we would race to you into your loving and graceful arms, into your, your throne of grace. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to take just a minute for you guys to have a chance to just pray and think and reflect on uh, everything that's happened in this service up until now, including God's word.